I'm Candace Malcolm with True North, and I'm very excited today to be sitting down with J.J. McCullough. Uh, J.J. is a columnist with The Washington Post, and he is also a prominent YouTuber with very interesting, amusing political uh, commentary. He used to write uh, longer articles over at the National Review, but J.J., you just said that you're not uh, doing that anymore. Not so much. So uh, we're in Vancouver, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to grab J.J and talk a little bit about some of his more controversial views and the direction of the Conservative Party and conservatism more broadly in Canada. So first, JJ, thanks for sitting down with me here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I feel like you're one of these strange uh, political commentators where you're both, like your, your YouTube content is very like like PC, PC, uh, PG-13, <laughs> very like family friendly, uh, friendly to teenagers and that kind of thing, like not controversial at all. But then you have opinion pieces that for some reason just kind of like trigger other members of the mainstream media. And I would say like, you know, the Laurentian elite in Ontario and maybe Montreal. So wh which which one is the true JJ? Are you the kind of funny political commentator or are you the controversial sort of polemicist? I mean, I think I'm just myself, you know, and I just try to be my true self. You know, I'm my true self on YouTube. I'm my true self on my columns. You know, I mean, I guess I, I, it's really weird for me actually to think of myself as somebody that's controversial because I don't think of myself as an overly provocative person. I don't think of myself as like an Ezra Levent type who like wants to be controversial and feeds off of controversy. I just think of myself as someone who likes being honest, who likes telling the truth as I understand it. You know, when I make my YouTube videos, I'm sharing facts about the world. I do sort of light political analysis. But then when I'm doing my columns for the Washington Post, when I'm doing columns in, you know, National Review like I used to, or when I'm beacon off on Twitter, I'm being my true self as well. I'm performing a different sort of function. But, you know, I am what I am. And uh, I've my whole political career, my whole media career, I should say, has just been based around being my authentic self. And people can take it or leave it. And I guess a lot of people are happy to leave it. So, <laughs> Well, I think that's the case with uh, almost everyone. That's kind of the great thing about all the social media platforms is that you can really seek out who you like and who you want to follow. I, I love following your Twitter feed because I feel like you just come out and say it. There's no beating around the bush. Sometimes I'll be kind of thinking about something, you know, for a column and then JJ's like right out saying things <laughs> like they are. So let's go through some of your sort of more controversial positions that a lot of them I don't find controversial myself, but maybe it's because I'm not part of the Laurentian elite. Um, so I think the main thing that I remember you writing about the first time I heard about you was you kind of taking uh, aim at the sort of anti-Americanism, that mm. the strain of anti-Americanism that runs on both sides of the political spectrum in Canada, both in the liberal and conservative side, and you just sort of didn't see it that way. So can you walk us through your, your views on that? Well, I think it is the most toxic force in Canadian culture, even more than just Canadian politics. I think, you know, that this country, in many respects, has anti-Americanism in its deepest core. Like, it is very difficult, and I'm sensitive to this, it is very difficult to articulate a sense of Canadianism that is not always in some degree engaged in a game of compare and contrast with the U.S. that always is supposed to let Canada coming off looking better and America looking worse. And I feel like so much of that is just based around, uh, you know, falsehood, exaggeration, stereotype, dishonesty. It's all based around sort of presenting America as this, like, evil, sinister, deeply dysfunctional, ignorant, you know, hate-filled, just, it's like, it's cartoonish, and it's just so obviously false. And I've always, ever since I was young, I've always had a sense that it's false, and that it's cartoonishly 
false, and it's animated by a kind of insecure that insecurity that Canadians have. And so I've always just liked pushing back against it. I mean, I guess I said before that I don't see myself as a controversial person, but I guess I do see myself as a bit of a contrarian person. And I like forcing people to sort of confront uh, their own ludicrous beliefs. And I do think that anti-Americanism is quite ludicrous. You know, when people say like, oh, I can't go down to America, like they'll shoot you there, or, you know, like, oh, they're all fat and America's never done anything good. And Canada's like, you know, the real moral superpower of the world. And it's like, there's so many arguments. Like America's obviously a really great society. America's done so much good for the world, whether it's, you know, technology, medicine, entertainment, you know, you name it, you know, not even getting into like America's uh, good role in global affairs, global diplomacy, all of these sorts of things. So I don't know. I just, I find it just an endless source of exhaustion how anti-American Canadians are. And I'm always going to be on the side of America because I really do feel that so much of what this country has, we have by virtue of the fact that we're next door to America. And I think that the fact that Canadians cannot appreciate what a virtue that is, is really, it's, it, it's, it's sad. It's really a tragedy, I think. I, I just correct you one thing, because I think some Canadians, I think like a overwhelming, I don't know what percentage, but for, for myself, I have family on both sides of the border and going down to the States was just like, I mean, I mean you know, things are slightly different. You know, they have different candies and different yeah. whatever names for certain things. So it was always amusing to see like, what do Canadians say? What do Americans say that are different? But like fundamentally, it's very, very similar society, culture, all the things. Obviously, we have different histories. And yeah, the idea that somehow you know, what, what, what America is doing is so wrong. It's, it's like a very uh, historically ignorant uh, perspective. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was reading back uh, a, a, like a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. After the First World War, uh, there was like a division between what's now today Iraq and Syria. And they, they, they just wanted the French and the English out. And, and they were actually like the people at the time were advocating for America to come in and help be the kind of like broker between the the peace talks because they just had so they, they wanted like they were done with colonialists and they saw America as a sort of like non-colonialist power that was neutral and good and a force for good in the world. And so, you know, to, to, to just yeah. only look at like U.S. foreign policy from like post 9-11 and to forget like everything else that has happened, you know, in creating like a free and peaceful world and, you know, free markets around the world that have brought so many people out of poverty. It's like this very ignorant way of looking at it. And then also like, I, I see the same thing where people are like, oh, Americans are dumb. It's like, well, they also have the world's greatest institutions. Like, do you think the people who graduate from Harvard and Yale are dumb? Like, <laughs> you know, like there's it's just such a straw man kind of argument. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, thousands and thousands of Canadians immigrate to the US every year and start lives there and become enormously successful in academia, in science, in business, tech. in what tech, tech yeah, Silicon sports, is, entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can go through the line, right? And, <laughs> you know, and these, these people, I think, are successful in part because they learn to turn off that part of their brain, right? They are genuinely ambitious Canadians who want to be successful in life, and they they don't allow themselves to think of America in this one-dimensional, stereotypical kind of way. They understand America as the place where the good things are, and, you know, they're chasing their personal ambition, and they, you know, sort of are willing to uh, engage with that kind of stuff. It's the small-mindedness of Canadians who instead... Uh, you know, sort of wallow in these sort of one-dimensional stereotypes and cliches and, and ignorance 
that they sort of, and you know, you see this all the time, like, you know, a group of Canadians get together and it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to just sort of say, oh, America, oh, you know, healthcare sucks. And you know, like just, and I think that we as Canadians all have an obligation, well, at least Canadians that think like you and I do, to push back against that a little bit. Because I think it's just like, I mean, it's, it's you know, I guess it's kind of like a form of bullying, right? Like you pick on someone that often doesn't have the capacity to defend themselves in that context. Obviously, America can defend itself. But in that context, Canada, in, in the context of Canadian culture, Canadian society, America has very few advocates. I think in the political world, in the journalistic world, uh, in sort of the broader sort of cultural space. And I, I guess I've just taken it upon myself to be an American advocate in the context of Canada using whatever tools I have at my disposal to make that argument. Yeah, no, and it's great. I think it's much needed. E you know, even if I didn't agree with you on that, it just someone to push back against, you know, we all agree that America's the worst. So yeah. it's like, you know, you could have at least one person who's willing to defend it. That would be like my criticism of like all of the Canadian mainstream media. Like, like imagine having a panel where they actually had like a pro-Trump voice. Yeah. I mean, not, not because we'd agree with that pro-Trump voice, but just to hear like, you know, the policies that he's doing, it's not just that he's enforcing them because he's an evil person. He actually has some rationale and you may or may not agree with it, but let's at least hear it out instead of just completely kind of brushing over it. I, you mentioned uh, in, your, in your last discussion a little bit about healthcare and how yeah. uh, Canadians kind of just think private healthcare is bad because that's what the United States has. Public healthcare is good because that's what Canada has. But when you look at like the outcomes, I mean, Canada doesn't really do that much better than the United States in terms of like a lot of the actual procedures and, uh, you know, affordability, accessibility, all that kind of stuff. Um, so again, that's like another issue that's like a third rail, like you're just not really allowed to. Yeah. And you're not, you're not allowed to talk about it because of the American issue. Right. So it's like you're absolutely right. Like when you look at international rankings of the Canadian healthcare system. The Canadian healthcare system is not ranked very well internationally. Mm -hmm. Like it's not considered up there with Europe, like I think we'd like to imagine ourselves. Or is. even better, like I think some people think that Canada has the best healthcare in the world just because it's oh, universal and free. But I think there was an OECD ranking that had the United States, I think out of, I think it was out of 19 countries, the United States was ranked 19 and Canada was ranked 18. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's a very, it's a very important point, right? And so it gets into the the idea that when Canadians are having a conversation about healthcare and the supposed merits of our healthcare system, it's not really a conversation about healthcare. It's a conversation about anti-Americanism. It's a conversation about superiority and and how much better we feel, you know? Because it's it's sort of <laughs> Canadian healthcare is analyzed in the context of a sample size of two, mm -hmm. Canada and America. And the American uh case study is not even a real case study. It's like this cartoonish caricature extreme that the politicians and the media sort of, you know, the dying on the street if you can't have your, I remember they used to have these ads on the radio. I mean, they were telling you to get health insurance when you go to the US, traveler's insurance, which mm -hmm. is a good thing. But you know, like the way they presented it was this sort of like caricature of like how when you show up at the American hospital, the first thing they want is your wallet and like, like these kinds of things, like that's the cliche that you're sort of forced to engage with. And I think that, you know, it's just important to be able to push back against that a bit and to sort of say, well, what are the true facts about the American uh, healthcare system? And that doesn't mean that we have to adopt that system ourselves, but let's just be grounded and realistic and understanding that the system is not complete garbage, right? Which is one of the reasons why, you know, you have, uh, 
you know, why something like getting Obamacare passed was very difficult because, you know, like the, a lot of Americans are very defensive about the system that they have. Mm -hmm. And they're not defensive about the system that they have just because, you know, they're ignorant, brainwashed, you know, hicks who don't know any better. No, like there's a lot of ways in which the, the healthcare system status quo is working for a lot of working Americans who get their insurance provided by their employer. And, you know, and there's a lot of ways in which the Canadian healthcare system is obviously not working for Canadians and that there are uh, aspects of the way in which it is not working for Canadians precisely because it is a, a public system that is so overly sentimentalized that the politicians are too afraid to uh, re-examine it critically or to introduce any sort of reforms because they've kind of conditioned the public to believe that any role for the private sector is uh, Americanization of the system. And so it's really kind of this horrible dilemma in which the public has been whipped up by the politicians for electoral purposes to believe one thing about the healthcare system. And then those same politicians secretly know that it needs reform that they cannot sell to the public because the public has been, you know, whipped up into believing that any reform is Americanization and thus bad. So like this is an example of how the sort of the cultural cult of anti-Americanism is actually like actively preventing Canada from pursuing the kind of common sense rationalistic policies that would be in the best interest of all Canadians. Well, and so what do we do about that? I mean, you're stuck in a situation where the Canadian healthcare system is going to be wildly unaffordable when baby boomers retire. Uh, we have issues where people don't have uh, access to the kind of care they need, like if it's a, a specialization, which is, is why I would say, you know, in the U.S., it's not a perfect system and there are people that are excluded, which is something that needs to be addressed. But when it comes to the best service on the planet in terms of the most advanced technology, the kind of pushing research that's going like pushing towards, you know, solving complicated medical cases or going towards like solving complicated uh, diseases, it's all coming out of the top U.S. universities mm -hmm. because they have the private funding and because they're connected to these very expensive hospitals. Uh, so, 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 so in Canada, we have the situation where we're just stuck and we can't have an honest conversation and we can't address a problem like I think healthcare is like a third of our federal budget or something yeah. like that um, and it's like you know how, how much further are we gonna let it go before we just admit that you know this isn't really feasible is it gonna have to come to a situation where it goes bankrupt or we're gonna learn to have to have a civil conversation about well, public policy no I mean it's a very good it's a very good point that you're making you know in every election this is a remarkable sort of thing in every election whenever they poll the Canadian public what is the issue that matters most to you the top two is always the economy and then healthcare. But there is no issue that is discussed less in the context of Canadian policy, politics yeah. than healthcare. Yeah, we never right? talked about it. But the public has anxieties about it that I think are very real. You know, I think that <laughs> certainly when you, uh, I don't know if it's the case back east, but certainly the case out here, like a lot of the hospitals are just clearly not high quality institutions. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of uh, access problems, as you've said. You know, the famous waiting times are in fact infamous and are in fact true. As people get older and they see what it's like to try to get a specialist and how long you have to wait and and the quality of care that you receive when you finally do uh, get to see someone. No, like these are very real concerns and the public has very real anxieties about it. The politicians know what it would take to address some of those concerns, which would involve some degree of uh, opening things up more to the uh, private sector and allowing, you know, frankly, people that have the means to pay for more coverage for themselves, thus freeing up the public sector to provide more service for the people who can't uh, afford to pay, right? That's this is one of the sort of the problems with the Canadian healthcare system that I always get back to, and I think it gets back to 
a sort of larger problem with uh, Canadian society and the anti-Americanism is that there are a lot of aspects of the Canadian sort of uh, uh, sort of system, healthcare being a good example, where it's basically a kind of subsidy for a kind of middle class lifestyle, right? So like there's a lot of middle class people in this country who have the means to pay, you know, a monthly premium or something like that for a higher quality of, of care or just for the coverage of care that they're receiving right now. They could easily afford to pay something out of pocket to, to sort of feed into the health care uh, that they receive. To like but enhance their own... Uh, to, or just to, even to keep the system solvent, right? in British right? Columbia you pay a monthly premium. We did, although the NDP government has got rid of that now. And it was very symbolic and very contentious even when it existed. But the point is that the reason why, you know, we don't, uh, why you can't do that kind of thing is because Canadians have been sort of told that the system that as it exists right now is a free system and it should be a free system and that somehow the freeness of the system is a reflection of the virtue that we have as Canadians, like that we are such a perfectly compassionate, welcoming, generous people, and that's why the healthcare system is free. And that's why, so like, even though I might have the means to pay for some portion of my own healthcare costs, I shouldn't have to pay, not because I'm, you know, selfish and self-interested and just don't feel like parting with my money for something I could easily afford. It's because I'm so great and I'm a great Canadian and I'm so compassionate that I shouldn't have to pay. If you understand the point that I'm trying yeah, to make Yeah, you're here, so right? committed to egalitarianism that you're not willing to take a, a better healthcare service than your fellow Canadian or something like that. Well, it's just kind of like that, you know, demonstrably, if we were asked to pay a little bit more, if the people that had the means to pay a little bit more were in fact being asked to pay, that would be better for the whole system overall because yeah. it would help yeah, the people. Yeah, you'd remove those people from the wait list. Well, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's sort of like when you have um, uh, private schools versus public schools, right? Like mm -hmm. it's often, the teachers unions often get exercised that the government gives any money at all to private schools. But private schools actually help lessen the burden on the public system by taking those who have the ability to pay out of the public system and into the private system, which then allows the public system to have more resources, you know, more uh, funding per student, per capita, all of these kinds of things. The same logic could easily apply to the healthcare system. But, you know, we've been told to believe that we have a right to pay nothing and that by paying nothing we are somehow good moral people. When I would argue that actually by paying something to, to people that have the means to pay a little bit could subsidize a system that would in fact be helping you know, the less fortunate. But instead it's this kind of like complacent middle class comfort with paying nothing and thinking that they're being virtuous by paying nothing, even though that complacency is, I think, at the root of a lot of the sort of the financial sustainability problems. Yeah, and then I, I've made this argument before, but then people become kind of like entitled to the welfare state, like they've been paying into it so much and they believe that they're owed it. So even in the future, like you couldn't go and break up like the pensions or the health care because people feel like so entitled to it, even though you know, it's it's never really it's it's not something that's concrete that should should be out of touch uh, from the politicians. So another one of your contentious viewpoints uh, is to do with Quebec. I'll, I'll kind of tie these two together because you have one uh, sort of about the role of Quebec within Confederation. It's really interesting, but then also coupled with the idea that any federal politician must be perfectly fluent in both English and French, which really just excludes a lot of people in a lot of the country from ever being eligible. Uh, to run federally, which kind of could turn away a lot of people. So how did you come to these views? And maybe you can kind of help rearticulate them. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess when you grow up in British Columbia, 
you realize how preposterous bilingualism is. Like, as long as I've ever been alive, I have understood bilingualism as this like weird symbolic thing that is of no practical significance to my lived experience or the lived experience of anyone else in this province, right? Yeah. So like no one, I mean, I shouldn't say no one because obviously there are some French speaking people as there's Italian speaking, you know, every sort of language, Portuguese speaking, every language under the sun, there are some people that will speak it in any province. But obviously this is by no stretch of any imagination a bilingual province. Like there is not an equal uh, community of French and English speakers to the point where it would make logical sense to put all of the signs and packages and boxes and whatnot in both French and English. So to me that always just kind of seemed somewhat ludicrous and, and the idea that this is being done for ideological reasons by a distant government, you know, on the other side of the continent. So that sort of instinctively has just always made me skeptical, like that this just seems very contrived and very artificial. And like why this is being done is being done for some political reason for people that are very far away and it's being sort of artificially imposed here. But the problem is like if it's just, if bilingualism was just something that kind of seemed weird and annoying to me as a British Columbian and kind of pointless, that would be one thing. But it, the problem is when this fantasy reaches the point where it's actively distorting our democracy, which is what I believe happens in the cases that you described. When, for example, like right now, we're talking about who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party someday. And what is the first criteria that you always hear spoken about in the press when they're sizing up a candidate's fitness for that office? It's like, well, fluently bilingual, right? Fluently bilingual, former cabinet minister, fluently bilingual, you know, former executive of this or that. And to me, like that is not at all what I think we should be elevating as one of the first criteria when it comes to sizing up who should be prime minister of this country, you know. But unfortunately, uh, it is treated extraordinarily seriously. And as a result, we are cleaving something like 80% of Canadians who are not fluent in both French and English. Right now, it, the census had it out just the other day where it's like, we're at an all-time high and it's 17.9% of Canadians are fluent in French and English. Only 9% of Canadians who speak English as their first language are fluent in French and English. And those are disproportionately English Canadians who live in Quebec, right? In, which Montreal. is to say Montreal, yeah. right? So you're talking about like an extraordinarily tiny slice of the Canadian public that then because of this kind of like fantasy of bilingualism, you're saying like only this tiny class of people can be prime minister, can be a senior cabinet minister, can be governor of the Bank of Canada, can be chief justice of the Supreme Court, can be governor general, can be head of the armed forces. You know, you go down the list. And in any other society where you had so much power concentrated in such a tiny sliver of the society, we'd say this is not really a proper democracy. Like this is some sort of deformed elitist society that is sort of set up in a way that privileges this certain elite. And they are an elite. I mean, I'm sure that there's plenty of people in Montreal who are speaking English and French on a day-to-day -day basis and don't think of themselves as being particularly elite. And that's fine, I'm sensitive to them. But when you're talking about like a certain class of people that have sort of grown up in this like Montreal, Ottawa sort of axis, you know, often uh, they're from bilingual families, you know, a good example is, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, you know, he literally grew up in a house, you know, as the son of a prime minister where like his father would speak, you know, English to him on one floor of the mansion and French on another floor of the mansion. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> like in order to like make him the perfectly bilingual, you know, specimen. Right. And then and with other families that have means, you know, they put their kids into French immersion at a very young, or young age 
or you know they go on like immersion trips to France or you know or they put them in uh, you know immersive schools of other sorts universities and and this sort of thing like they put a lot of effort and means into like turning their their kids into a, a perfectly bilingual person because of the ambition right but you know, most Canadians, this is not remotely one of their first priorities in life. To most Canadians, French is a distant, exotic, and for all intents and purposes, foreign language that does not make any logical sense to learn. And that's the other thing that we have to be very clear about, is that learning another language is very difficult. And time-consuming. And very time-consuming. And most, you know, linguists will tell you that your ability to retain and gain fluency in a language is largely dictated by perceived need and perceived need in the context of communication, not perceived need in the context of like, well, I might want to be prime minister someday, therefore I should learn French. It's like, no, do I need this language to communicate with people that are around me in a day to day fashion, which is why Montrealers become fluently bilingual, because that is a bicultural bilingual society. A person out here in British Columbia, they might want to learn how to speak fluent French for political reasons, but it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for them to achieve the level of fluency that the political class, that the media, and certainly that the Quebecers that we're all supposed to be so anxious about would consider sufficient because, you know, you do not gain uh, pure fluency just by reading books or by watching movies. You gain it by using it in a day-to-day -day basis. So any political system that asks this very unrealistic uh, requirement of its political class is not a society that I think is really a democracy worthy of the name. Yeah, well, just to back up your point, so I also grew up in Vancouver, and the first time I ever met a native French speaker was like when I went to France as a teenager. Like yeah. I never ever interacted with one, and I think that a lot of students at my school you kind of resent French because it's forced upon you, mm. and it is sort of very like you know, the establishment says that you must speak French because we're this bilingual country. But if you grow up in Vancouver, I mean, you're far more likely to interact with Mandarin speakers or, you know, any, I, I don't even think that French would be ranked as like one of the top five, maybe even top 10 languages mm. spoken by households in Vancouver. Oh, absolutely. And so it does seem like a little bit odd and foreign that, you know, even if you take a little bit in school, you take a class or something that doesn't lead to the kind of fluency required to say be willing to get into federal politics and I, I think what you what you get is you know you end up even of the conservative party when it comes to leaders you know you have you, you end up with leaders like Andrew Scheer who was sort of on the on the outside is a, from the prairies and maybe a westerner but you know if you if you read a little bit about Andrew Scheer he grew up in Ottawa his parents were I think bureaucrats or his father worked for the Ottawa citizen and his mother was uh, in the in the civil service so you know he is kind of like an insider establishment fellow yeah. that sort of ended up uh, becoming uh, wearing the moniker of like peri populism, but really he wasn't. He was part of this sort of Laurentian elite. No, it's true. And I mean, and the other thing that's important to remember about uh, politicians like Andrew Scheer is that they were elected to parliament when they were extraordinarily young, right? Like Andrew Scheer was in his early 20s when he was elected to parliament. The same thing is true with like Jason Kenney, James Moore, like these sort of Westerners that are often held up as being like, oh, anyone can do it, right? But it's like when you're elected to parliament at that young of an age, uh, and when you're going to like you know start your career in Ottawa at that young of an age, again like you're in a a, a milieu in which the, you're getting a lot of reinforcement for your bilingualism. Like if if Andrew Scheer wanted to uh, practice his French and all the rest of it, he obviously had a lot of opportunities. So did Jason Kenney. So for that matter, did uh, did Stephen Harper. Although the Harper explanation, I, from what I understand, Harper is is just kind of a bit of a natural polygot. Like he's just interested in language for its own sake and mm -hmm. you know he can speak Spanish as well and this kind yeah, of thing I've heard. So but anyway the point is that this is it's just it's such an exceptional circumstance 
to be able to be speak fluent French, certainly when you're from a non-Montreal, Ottawa sort of part of the country. And I think in the context of the conservative leadership uh, election, we just have to really realize how much of a toll that is taking on the ability for this country to have leaders that have fresh ideas, who ha come from a walk of life other than young cabinet minister, you know, who was elected to Ottawa at age 20 and has only ever thought about politics in the context of Parliament Hill. And I think that that's really, like, I, I wrote a piece about this for the Washington Post the other day. Like, I think that when we're talking about, like, why is the Conservative Party not better? Why is Canada's ruling elite in general not better? You have to look at structural explanations as much as just kind of, like, ideological theories in that. And I focus a lot, like, if there's been one kind of consistent theme of a lot of the commentary that I've done over the years, it's that I want to talk more about structural factors that explain things. And it is frustrating to me that people don't talk about the structural role that bilingualism has played in limiting and... Uh, you know, causing the degree of conformity of thought that we see in, in the Canadian political class. And so I know that it's, it's seen as a controversial thing to question. Like you said, oh, I'm a controversial person. <laughs> but I, I just like to me, it it's, shouldn't be controversial. Like it's just an objective reality that this is a system that we've imposed upon our democracy that is causing a lot of problems and we should be able to re-examine it. And I, I welcome the debate. Like if there are people that can make a like, aggressive case for bilingualism, why I'm wrong about this, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. But what I often hear is just like, you shouldn't talk about that. Like th this is a taboo. Certainly like Canadians from another generation have, you know, like a lot of uh, hangups about it. Like, I guess they feel like that we've gone through this before and that bilingualism was kind of like the price of buying a certain sort of social peace after, I don't know, like the FLQ crisis or Lord knows what. But you know, like our generation, like being younger, I just think it's time to like re-examine some of these things. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to say like, you know, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau passed the Official Languages Act, I'm sure his heart was in the right place. It was a kind of solution to the perceived problems of his time. But I'm sort of saying the, you know, it's now literally been 50 years since that piece of legislation was passed. It's time for an objective re-examination of it and sort of say, is it done what it set out to do, A, and B, what were the unintended consequences of it? And I think the unintended consequences are quite ample. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think that you could say that it was aspirational. Like, you know, we would all like to have an, a society where everyone spoke, you know, multiple languages and people in one part of the country could easily communicate with others. Uh, but can you really just, like, impose that through a top-down edict that says, like, okay, we're all bilingual now? You know, like you said, 50 years later, it's not really the case because most people don't live that way. Like it doesn't yeah. actually change your day to day life just because you know, some politician told you that you have to learn French. Uh, as I said, I remember resenting French class because I just thought it was so annoying. Like I would way rather learn Spanish so that when I go to Mexico, I can talk to people or whatever. You <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think it's like I, I could see the other perspective, too, just in that, like if you are from rural Quebec, uh, you, you would want your prime minister to be able to communicate to you. Mm -hmm. I, I would feel resentful if there was a prime minister that didn't really speak English. Yeah. And uh, I, I would not feel like fully maybe represented, but that just shows how, what a strong, uh, how, how strong language is in identity and in sort of, you know, making sure that you feel like a, a part of a community. Can, can, you, can you communicate to each other in, in a single language? And I think that when it comes to French, a lot of people in Western Canada wouldn't care. They would be indifferent. If there was a political leader like, Say right now, uh, there, there's a couple of prominent people that their name keeps getting thrown around to be the next leader. Like I'll say Brad Wall mm -hmm. or you know Kevin O'Leary before uh, Brett Wilson maybe that would all be kind of like interesting leaders that would take the party in a new direction. But none of them speak French, so they're yeah. just like out of the question. 
And I think that a lot of people in Western Canada would be like, who cares? Just, you know, let's run and see what happens. Exactly. Whereas I, I, I worry that more people in Ontario would have the sensibility that they would want, and, and Eastern Canada as well, a sensibility that they would think it was unfair to people in Quebec to not have a French-speaking prime minister. Yeah, I guess this is, I've, I've heard people say this about the way that Ontarians sort of think about politics, that like the, the idea of like, will it play in Quebec is a consideration that Ontarians take seriously, or at least are purported to take seriously, that people in, on, or in, in Western Canada just don't think of it all, yeah. right? But I mean, what I would argue as well, and this was a point I made in my, in my column, is that there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that being bilingual makes much of a difference in terms of the eyes of Quebec, you know? Stephen Harper was bilingual. I mean, I know that to some Quebecers, it doesn't matter how bilingual you are, you're never bilingual enough. But for the purposes of the argument, we'll just say Stephen Harper was fluently bilingual. Uh, Andrew Scheer was fluently bilingual. A lot of good that did them in Quebec, right? The Conservative Party in any sort of center-right party in this country, be it the PC, Alliance, Reform, or the Conservative Party of Canada, has not won more than a dozen seats in Quebec in 30 years. You have to go all the way back to Brian Mulroney in 1988 under the Progressive Conservative Party to find a Conservative Party that did well in Quebec. And that's despite, you know, like I said, a succession of fluently bilingual leaders. Um, and certainly, like, you could say the same thing about the NDP. They've had nothing but uh, bilingual leaders. They did well in Quebec uh, for a brief window of time, and that has now come to a close. Well, when so, they were running someone from Quebec. Right? Well, that was, exactly. also, that was also important, right? So, like, there, this is the issue as well. It's to what extent do Quebecers care about the language side versus what, to what degree do they just want a Quebecer on the ballot? One of the biggest uh, determinants of how Quebecers will vote is just whether or not that party leader happens to be from Quebec. This is the case for the Liberal Party as well as the, the Conservatives or the NDP or anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. Mulroney, not incidentally, who was the last Conservative leader to do well in Quebec, was also the last Conservative leader from Quebec. So, you know, whereas somebody like... Uh, Say the fact that Justin Trudeau did so much better than, say, Michael Ignatieff. Well, you know, Justin Trudeau is also identifies as a son of Quebec in the way that Ignatieff obviously wasn't, right? Jack Layton was from Quebec in a way Jagmeet Singh obviously isn't, right? Even Thomas Mulcair did better than Jagmeet Singh, who was mm -hmm. also from Quebec. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's these things are 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 complicated, and I think that the idea that if you just speak French, that that somehow is sufficient, is just not really borne out by the evidence. And that, the argument that I'm making now is just kind of an argument for the Conservative Party to sort of re-examine their own commitment to this principle. The Liberals can commit to the principle all they want because I think they believe in it deeply, like as a matter of ideological principle, like they're committed to a Trudeau-pian view of, of the country 50 years later that we can make a bilingual country and that I think to some degree they're just in denial and they think the country is bilingual and that's why they're spending all of this money now on you know supporting the French language minorities in British Columbia you know literally like building uh, French schools in the Arctic because they think that you know that's their ideological understanding of the country that they govern it's obviously not the case in reality but the conservatives are much less in hawk to that delusion. I think that they sort of worship at this particular altar because they think it makes sense as a matter of political strategy. And I just think there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that's the case. So how much of what the conservatives put forth as their policy is them just bowing to the sort of politically correct, you know, structure set up by the liberals and how much is it things that they actually genuine, genuinely believe? Because I think one of your other criticisms of the Conservative Party of Canada 
is that they're not really all that conservative. Uh, when you look at some of the sort of main things that they put forth, uh, they don't really differentiate themselves that much from the liberals, like in terms of, you, know, so you think of some of the major issues in the, in the U.S., say, that Republicans go after, like, you know, they're very pro-life, mm. the party, even, even someone like Donald Trump, who is sort of more of a New York liberal or whatever, yeah. you know, he was very adamantly anti-abortion, pro-life. Uh, you know, when, when it comes to health care, they're not willing to have those conversations. They're hardly willing to have conversations about, uh, you know, taxes or big government, the big welfare state, the, the pensions and the health care that are unsustainable. Like, you know, when it comes to sort of the major issues in our society, it seems like the, the conservatives don't really take a very strong yeah. conservative position. So I, I, I kind of want to have your take on you know, what, what, what should the conservatives be doing to try to put forth more of a conservative face? Who, who should be leading this party? What would you like to see uh, as we transition here to a new leader? Yeah, I mean, I think that all the things that you said are, are, are entirely correct. Another issue that uh, you didn't mention, but I know is important to you, would be immigration as well. Like, you don't see a lot of differentiation right. on the two parties there. Um, but one of the things that I think is, is quite unique and quite frustrating is that I do think, like, a lot of people within the conservative party, within certainly within, like, the high ranks of the party, not only the leaders, but like the people around them, are very stereotypically conservative. Like, are likely to be, I think, pro-life. Are likely to have like very strong views on on immigration and uh, the healthcare system. And if you hang out with them in an intimate setting, they'll tell you those things very openly, right? Like that. And they all, you know, they watch Fox News, they cheer on Trump, you know, they read the National Review. Like, they're very mm -hmm. much part of a very clearly ideological. Uh, sort of conservative worldview that is not philosophically very different at all from the sort of conservative worldview in, in the States. They just are playing a very different political game that I think is often very condescending and patronizing because it's based around the premise that like the Canadian people are like very fragile and very delicate and cannot handle that kind of stiff medicine and therefore need to like be given this very sort of gentle incrementalist super ultra watered down version of of the truth, right? And and I find that really, I mean, it is patronizing, as I said, and, it, and it's kind of depressing because it's like, if you believe in those things as a matter of policy, if you're happy to cheer on, you know, Trump appointing Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court or what have you, but you're not willing to do the equivalent of that in this society, well then, you know, you're, you're committing like a, a great offense to the Canadian people, right? You're, you're denying them your own wisdom as you believe it for the sake of political expediency, which is to say for the sake of power for its own sake, like that's a form of extreme moral cowardice. And I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's really appalling. And I mean, I don't quite know how you sort of course correct. I mean, like the thing with, with Andrew Scheer, I think was very interesting about the whole issue with the, the, the social issues, right? The right. sort of the conventional narrative is that's what brought him down, right? But part of, I think what brought him down was that this hidden agenda thing does have some validity to it, right? Like Andrew Scheer says he's personally pro-life. If you are pro-life, then you believe that abortion is one of the great moral crimes of our time and that it's something that a sort of a, a sane society should not practice to the extent we do. Okay, if you believe that, then what does that say about you as a politician who's not willing to act on that deeply held moral conviction in your public capacity as a man who in theory has the ability to change laws and so forth, right? It either means that you're like a complete moral coward who's involved in politics for completely amoral reasons, or that you maybe do have a hidden agenda that people are rightly 
uh, should be, you know, people on the left or what have you, are right to be suspicious of because other, it just does not make sense that you could believe that and not act upon it unless you're just this completely cynical creature, right? And so I do think that conservatives need to figure out a way that they can be true to their convictions in a more honest and open way and actually talk about what it is that they believe, articulate what it means to be a conservative, why they believe these things, and why their vision of the country and of politics and of morality and ethics and whatever else you want to get into actually meaningfully differs from what the parties of the left believe and are pushing. You know, tell us how, I mean, it sounds very simple to say, but it's like, tell us why your ideas are better and are going to make the country better, which is different than saying policy, right? Mm -hmm. Policy is a very nuanced and specific thing. And you know, the, the parties can make these big volumes of you know, their, their manifestos for the election. It's full of all these specific policy things. That's fine. But what I do think what Donald Trump showed is that a lot of people just want to have a sense of like, what are your base instincts? What is kind of like the, the sort of your sense of right and wrong that animates you on a day-to-day -day basis? And how is that mindset going to change Ottawa and thus change the country? And I don't think that that's something the conservatives have been at all good at doing. Frankly, I don't think that was something that Harper was good at doing, and I don't think that was something that Shear was good at doing. And instead, it sort of comes off that the voters are kind of being tricked, right? Like that the conservatives' leaders are treating the public in a, in a condescending way in order to kind of fool them into voting for a certain clique of smart people who are going to come and do their own thing. And I think that that, unfortunately, is how a lot of sort of conservative backroom people view politics and view the great game of politics. It's like, ha let's trick the Canadian public just enough to get in power. And then, you know, because we're all good people, then we'll run the country as it should be run. But we can't sort of campaign on that openly because the public is too skittish to do it. It becomes a completely, you know, circular reinforcing sort of cycle. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, like I personally thought that Stephen Harper was a great prime minister and I think he should go down as one of the better prime ministers just in terms of his policy, in terms of his sort of commitment to something like support of Israel or yeah. just, you know, the way that he handled uh, crisis. Like, I, I didn't agree with the uh, auto bailout in 2008, but, you know, faced with such an extraordinary circumstance, I think that he managed uh, the sort of recession spending in a, in a manageable way that he didn't grow the bureaucracy. I, I think that there's a couple of things that Harper did that, that really uh, are solid from a sort of fiscal conservative perspective. However, the kind of incrementalism, like you know, Harper had the opportunity, for instance, to defund the CBC yes. or at least change the model completely, put it something uh, more in line with what NPR is like in the United States yeah. instead of having this huge left wing ideological machine dictating our media landscape and eating up more and more. Uh, you know, but, but he failed to do that. He failed to appoint conservative judges. He failed to really push the country in any meaningfully conservative way, which, you know, you could argue maybe that's not the role of the prime minister. Maybe that's more of a civil society thing where, you know, uh, academics and media figures and, uh, you know, cultural groups, think tanks, that kind of thing. It's their job to move and then politicians just kind of follow. But I think I think a lot of conservatives now view the incrementalism as a mistake that, you know, you need to be conservative and you need to be bold about it. But Again, you know, the lessons, the so-called lessons after the last election were, were, were just what you're saying, that Scheer was too conservative yeah. and that's why he lost. But I, I really didn't see him articulating a very strong conservative message. So for, for the next leader, do you think that sort of if, if, if the person, say, is Catholic or the person is, is pro-life, do you think it would be better for them to just sort of openly state that and say, you know, we, we as a conservative party want legislation on this issue, we want to reopen this debate? Or, or do you think that would just like 
bring the conservative party back or end, end up in a situation where the parties are split or you know something something even worse could happen if, if you did you know finally have a politician that had the courage to just say you know I, I think about half the people in the party are pro-life and so we're going to be a pro-life party uh, well, you know what would happen to the other half of the people in the party like I, I think that there is a consensus among people in the conservative party movement that they just really don't want to talk about those issues because they know that they lose elections. Um, so how can you be kind of honest and upfront with the Canadian people about what your political views are if you hold views that may be offside with the Canadian public? Or to go back to what you were talking about earlier about how there's sort of this scare tactic about health care that you believe that if you have any kind of private health care initiatives, it's because you're like awful and anti-Canadian and you don't care about common people and you want people to die on the street and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, all of these kind of narratives that get played out by the mainstream media really just denigrating conservatism. How do you overcome those things? You know, do, do, you, do you see someone in the party that might be the person who, who could hold the mantle or do you think it needs to be someone from the outside to fix all this? Um, well, I mean, maybe I'm naive because I think that the Canadian public is capable of, um, you know, accepting a higher grade of political conversation than we've had to date, right? I don't think that we need to forever exist in this sort of universe in which the conventional wisdom of the present is the conventional wisdom that we must always sort of be smothered by. I think that if you had a conservative, and again, like maybe I'm naive about this, but I feel like if you had a conservative who just sort of like came to the Canadian public and said, look, this is the reality of the healthcare system. And I'm like gonna argue it in clear, articulate terms, you know, talk about like how, you know, the current funding model is unsustainable. You know, we're gonna ask the people that have more to pay a bit more, that will subsidize the system, that will allow the less fortunate to have a higher quality of care. Or if, you know, if we're talking about abortion, if he just says like, look, this is the state of Canada's abortion laws. We have no regulation whatsoever. This makes us a radical outlier in the context of the whole world. We can at least bring our regime up to the standards that say Sweden has. That's not asking a lot. You know, just sort of framing these things in just kind of like a clear fact-based argument and putting the parties of the left a little bit on the defensive too. Like sort of saying, are you saying that, you know, no no one should ever pay anything into the Canadian healthcare system? Are you saying that any abortion in any context all of the time is great and there should be no health and safety or, or you know, uh, viability sort of restraints at all? Like put people on the defensive a little bit about some of these issues. and. I mean, to me, that's having a legitimate argument of ideas. And again, like, you know, maybe the conservatives would win or lose based on this. I would think that these arguments appeal to a certain sense of common sense and decency that I think most Canadians have. I think that when you poll Canadians about a lot of these questions, they do express opinions that are kind of more conservative than conventional wisdom dictates Canadians to have. So, I mean, I'm willing to try. I mean, I guess all you can sort of say is that we've tried the alternative. It doesn't seem to be working all that well because, you know, as I said before, the public uh, gets suspicious. They start to think like that it's not natural for the conservatives to claim that they have no problem with any of these status quo things. It does not make sense that people would self-identify as being members of a different political party that have views that are exactly the same as the party of the left. Right? Like that just doesn't pass the smell test. And so as a result, that's why it's very easy to push narratives that foster or that encourage suspicion of the conservatives as being, you know, devious or underhanded and that kind of thing. I think for a conservative leader to come forward and say, yes, I do think differently on these issues and I'm going to be willing to uh, articulate why I think differently. And I'm going to also 
call out the the left wing parties for you know being for putting them on the spot and forcing them to justify why their support of a rather radical status quo is in fact okay. You know, I would make this argument, of course, about bilingualism as well. I think you can make these arguments about immigration as well. But I think that there's also a lot of issues that uh, that the conservatives could just bring fresh to the table. You know, I don't think that all political debates have to occur within the framework of what the left wants to hurt the conservatives by raising suspicions on. Mm -hmm. You know, the conservatives should feel a little bit more empowered to bring forward some issues of their own and wage the offensive rather than always the defensive. And offensive as it relates to issues that relate to, you know, sort of experiences that affect day-to-day -day Canadian society. It doesn't have to just always be partisan offensiveness, right? It can, and I think this was part of the problem with Andrew Scheer, is that it can't just always be, like, the offensive issues can't just always be the Liberal Party is bad and corrupt and, you know, Justin Trudeau's a big dumb idiot or whatever, right? Like, you have to actually be able to, like, raise issues. Like, say, for example, here in Vancouver, drug abuse and homelessness is a huge problem in our society. I think most people are very aware of that. There are lots of drug-addicted people. There are lots of homeless people. It causes blight on the city. It's an embarrassment in the eyes of, you know, the large tourist uh, community we have here. Like, it's it's a problem. Well, and, so and, I, and also just for those individuals. Like, it's not absolutely. a decent life. Like, we live in an advanced Western rich country, and yet we have people who are just living in absolute filth, and it can't be a good life for them. I mean, they, oh, they deserve human dignity as well, and so we should acknowledge that dignity by trying to do what we can to lift them out of that. Sorry to interrupt you. No, but no, just, you, I, make, I no you, you, you make the exact very important point, right? Like, this is fundamentally a, a problem of, of quality of life for these people. It is, it is inexcusable that we have, you know, scenes like Hastings and Maine in this. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly appalling. But you know, you don't hear the conservatives talk about this. They don't wage the the offensive. They don't say, like, Canada has a huge significant homelessness problem, a huge significant drug addiction problem, that people are living these terrible lives and then dying in this tragic and, and grotesque way. And why are they not saying this? I don't know. I mean, why do we have an unambitious uh, political conversation about these kinds of social issues? And they are social issues. Like, social issues is not just abortion and LGBT rights. Like, this is a social issue. So I don't know why the conservatives are not a little bit more aggressive, but I do think that like a conservatism that moves forward will have to identify a few big issues that are impacting Canadian society and saying that like we are going to make these issues our causes, you know, because this is the thing with the left. So the Liberal Party has a lot of causes. They have climate change, they have LGBT rights, they have a reconciliation with the indigenous peoples. You know, they have a number of issues that they're willing to be aggressive on and assertive on and say, these are our priorities. The Conservatives traditionally have had basically one, which is like tax cuts, and that's about or, it, right? Or balancing the budget. Balancing the budget. Even which that, which they don't even of, really do when they're yeah, in office. Exactly, yeah. right? Because of course, balancing the budget requires making cuts, and of course, that's something that we can never do because people might be offended by that. Right. So going forward, it's not good enough to just say, oh, well, and I guess the other thing that conservatives are really uh, into is the, the pipelines. Right. Like, I think no, that yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't remember that conversation 10 years ago. That's like a, you know, a pretty recent thing. That's a, that is true. Right. But I, I do think that there is a problem of a conservative party that would just be pipelines and tax cuts. Like, I, I think that that's not sufficient to win an election. I think that's maybe sufficient to do what we saw in the last election and win like 80% of the vote in rural Alberta. Mm -hmm. But you know, as much as I love Alberta, you do need to be able to expand more. And that requires having 
uh, having issues and having conversations and having causes that you're willing to fight for and be passionate about that seem relevant to the lived experiences of, of Canadians and issues that are kind of going ignored in the blind spot of, of the parties of the left who you know are preoccupied with their own pet concerns at the expense of many other completely valid uh, issues too. Yeah, so I, I would just add to that in saying that there's this sort of like um, perceived wisdom that the Canadian public is just like left wing, like the average disposition of a Canadian is left of center or left of our American cousins or whatever. And I would kind of challenge that. I think that Canadians are pretty culturally conservative. If you if you frame conservatism as thinking like, you know, the family is the primary institution or society, whereas I would say that liberals fundamentally believe that like the government is like the primary thing. I mean, this is like a famous Barack Obama. Uh, he opened, a, I think, the convention in 2012 saying that government is the only thing that we all belong to and yeah. everyone cheered. And to like a conservative, that kind of makes your skin crawl. Like, we don't belong to the government. Like, yeah. the government belongs to us. But, you know, fundamentally, I think that, that the Canadians don't see themselves as like a government-centric society. And I think that you can appeal to Canadians on kind of cultural issues that are not... So in your face, conservative, like like there's be things that the Canadian, you know, typical Canadian might agree with, but they still wouldn't really define themselves as being conservative. And, and I feel like the safe issues are the fiscal ones, but then you know the the, the the social ones like we're talking about with you know poverty or homelessness, um, but also you know the idea that like families are the best kind of like way to solve social issues. Like it's it's if if you know someone who's hard done by. You're better off helping them directly than like, like waiting for the welfare state to come along and save them. And that when you have welfare that's like providing this function, it discourages people from actually wanting to help and donate through their communities, through their churches, through their families, um, and that's kind of problematic. So I feel like conservatives need to figure out a way to capture that and sell it to the Canadian public. But I don't think that the media is any ally. I think that they need to like go around the media because the media is just not interested in helping to like promote a positive conservative um, vision. So do you have any hope for the next conservative leader? Do you, you know, you're not really saying who, who you support or anything like that. <laughs> well, but I mean, one, one thing that I was thinking about when you when you said that is that I do think a lot of it comes to the conservative leader's ability to articulate conservatism as a kind of disposition, right? And I, again, like I think that that's something that that Trump was very successful at doing, right? You had a sense of his basic disposition towards problems, what he saw as problems, you know, what, not even necessarily like how he was going to fix them, but just like the willingness to sort of say this is bad, that is bad, in his sort of blunt way, and so you kind of like trust his judgment, right? I mean, obviously, people have all sorts of problems with him, and there's lots of valid criticisms to make, but he offered himself up as basically like a leader, right? A leader with instincts and that people trusted those instincts and considered them superior to the instincts of Hillary Clinton or <clears throat> Barack Obama for that matter. And I think that that or is- Or other some, conservatives are or, or, yeah, or other conservatives, better than right? Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. Exactly, or... right? And so I do think that, that that is something, and the reason why I bring this up is because what you were saying before, like when it comes to sort of like, well, what is the conservative kind of just sort of like base disposition when it comes to things like, you know, family, the role of government and, and sort of uh, how we should react to certain social issues and social ills as they manifest. I think that you want to have, because I agree with what you were saying before, but like how a lot of Canadians are, are much less liberal, I think, when it comes to these kind of dispositional things. You can talk to even like somebody who votes NDP, like say some like middle-aged 
guy who votes NDP who lives here, you talk to him about a lot of issues that get beyond sort of partisan politics, and you'll realize that he has basically sort of conservative dispositions in terms of he would say something like, oh, you know, like there's too many people on drugs, or, you know, like the homelessness problem is a real disgrace or that people are too politically correct these days, people are too hypersensitive, like, you know, like there's a lot of these kinds of things where it's just kind of like, how do you basically see the world? How do you basically react? And I think that you have to have a conservative who can be seen as an ally in that kind of stuff. Like you can say, that guy thinks like I think. He says the kind of things that I say. He sees the problems in the same way that I do. He doesn't seem like some ultra-polished politician who's just trying to like trick me with this carefully you know, tailored policy platform, you know, tax credits and, you know, very vague euphemistic language and this kind of stuff. And I don't know, like, who that would be. I certainly don't think most of these sort of cabinet ministers who are sort of being held up are the right sort of person as far as that goes. Because um, I think that they've just been, there's like, you know, somebody like Rona Ambrose, Aaron O'Toole, you know, these, you know, Michael Chong, Peter McKay, like these people are all products of the system, right? Like they, they all studied under Stephen Harper, they all studied under Andrew Scheer. They understand one very specific way to practice politics because it's literally all they've known. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have political careers that extend beyond that right mm -hmm. they play the ottawa they're game like one the conservative establishment like capital c capital yeah e. absolutely like they're just right? the insiders there and, and you know like their background is is that they've been cabinet ministers they've been people that are used to playing defense under the harper years playing defense for policy playing the incrementalist game selling the public like engaging in marketing and 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 like that has sort of been a big part of their political orientation right they're not used to being leaders and they're not used to uh, really thinking critically about their own party in the way that I think would be necessary. The one who I do think is a little bit of an exception to this is Pierre Polyevra, just because I think that he has a kind of aggressiveness about him and a kind of bluntness that is quite at odds with the way that a lot of the other sort of colleagues speak and act. Pierre Polyevra is a controversial guy. A lot of people do not like him for those same qualities and find his personality like quite obnoxious and you aggressive, know aggressive yeah yeah and then like there's personal stuff as well like what does he like to work with and this kind of stuff that you hear from Ottawa people but I do think that he has a bit more he's closer to that than I think certainly any of the other people do does that mean that he'd be the best leader I don't know I mean we'll have to see who else gets involved in the in the campaign as well but I do think you know, at the end of the day, the leader of the Conservative Party is going to be decided by conservatives, right? It's not going to be decided by the media. It's not going to be decided by the left-wing opposition parties. It's going to be decided by rank-and-file conservative men and women uh, party members. That's not a big enough electorate, in my opinion. I would much rather we had a system like the U.S. where you have an open primary and let, you know, just ordinary voters vote. But I do think that this is something that has to be considered seriously when we're evaluating the likelihood of these different people to emerge as leaders, you know? If it was up to the media, yeah, I'm sure they'd install Peter McKay as leader tomorrow and he'd be marching in the Pride Parade the day after, right? But the fact is, is that it's going to be up to conservatives. And I think a lot of conservatives are going to have a sense of judgment about what they want out of a leader that is more similar to the kind of thing that I think that you and I have been articulating, where they'll have a sense that, like, the current track is not working. And just putting in a kind of another safe, media-friendly, centrist type who tries to be so studiously uncontroversial is not going to be good enough. I mean, I think it's possible that Rona Ambrose's sort of celebrity and her strong Alberta bona fides might be enough to sort of sell 
the the Canadian or the Conservative membership on someone who I think is basically you know very continuous with the sort of sheer approach. But I could also see somebody like Polly Ever who is more aggressive and more confrontational and and presents as quite a different sort of leader than Sheer or even Harper could do much better than I think a lot of people in, in the press are suspecting who are just so big into their own kind of narrative about what went wrong with Sheer that they're assuming that the Conservative Party will surely vote as I would vote and they've certainly reached the same conclusion I will and that therefore they, the party will make a sort of swift shift to the left and I, I just don't think that I think that that's a somewhat overstated case and I could be I would not be surprised if the party goes in quite a different direction. I hope you're right, because I feel like uh, a lot of people, especially the people who talk in the media, say like, oh, the reason Sheer lost is because he has these social issues, so all we need is an even more polished conservative that doesn't have that yes. like baggage. And so they look at Ron Ambrose like, hey, all, all we need is a conservative who will be like comfortable with the CBC and like written positively about in the Toronto Star, like as yes. if that's like the winning formula. And it's like, well, if you're going to have that as a leader, you might as well just have like three liberal parties or two liberal <laughs> parties because that's... And I, and I agree that even though Pierre Polivare is from the sort of Harper era, he's, he seems different and, and willing yeah. to be his own. I mean, just from very like preliminary looking at it, I feel like the True North audience that I've seen, they've sort of been vocally excited about the possibility of Pierre running. So mm. I, I feel like he has a little bit of momentum behind him and maybe it's because he's a little bit more willing to for instance, push back against the media or say, say it as it is. Well, JJ, thank you so much. It's been a really thought-provoking conversation and uh, really great to have you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me.